The older I get and the more possessions I obtain, the more I realize that the things in your house tell stories. The furniture you own has stories. If I were to come to your house and I were to walk through your house, you would probably have some pieces of furniture that I would ask about. How did you get that? How long have you had that? Is there any significance to this? And you would be interested, you would be uh, delighted to tell me more than likely. If you came to my house, you might come in and uh, you could see that out just outside of our kitchen in the, sitting next to the door in the garage, we have what's called a Hoosier cabinet. How many of you know what a Hoosier cabinet is? Please raise your hands. Okay, there's a certain generation that knows what a Hoosier, Hoosier cabinet is, and there's a bigger generation that doesn't have a clue. We inherited that from Sarah's parents uh, years ago uh, when we were living in Pensacola. And it's a fantastic, a Hoosier cabinet is basically, it's like a, a, a cupboard that serves as a workstation at the same time for when you're in the kitchen. And it has these compartments in it for different things. Like there's a compartment that is actually designed to sift flour. It's really cool and it's really old. Sarah's grandfather found it out in the woods one day when he was hunting rabbits, brought it home, refurbished it, put it back together, and now we have it. If you go into our kitchen, we've got a square uh, dining table in there that seems kind of out of place. But that dining table uh, was obtained by Sarah's great-grandfather and stayed in his house for many years until he gave it to Sarah's dad when Sarah's dad was 36 and then Sarah's dad gave it to us a few years ago, and that table is estimated to be 125 years old. It's just cool, and it has a fascinating story to it. If you were to go into our living room, you'd see an end table that has scratches all over the top of it. That end table used to sit next to a, a half wall in our previous house, and behind, on the other side of that half, half wall was our kitchen. And we would lock our dogs in the kitchen when we left the house. And our beloved beagle, Paco, was smarter than we could handle. And one day he figured out how to get on top of his kennel, climb onto that half wall, jump onto the end table, and then he would be free in the rest of the house. And that table has his claw marks all over it from all the times he made that escape. I could take you upstairs to Leah's room and you could see the crib that I spent months assembling before Micah was born because they sent me the wrong wall, uh, one of the walls to it. They sent me the wrong version of it. The holes didn't line up. It took me three times to contact that company to get them to send the right piece out. I had to throw pieces in the dumpster at our church building in Pensacola because they kept sending me the wrong piece. But I can also look at that crib and think about how it's the place that both of my daughters first slept on their own. You see, you can go through your house and you can look at pieces of furniture and they tell you a story. And I think that's important for us to note as we enter our new series of lessons here on Sunday nights. We've wrapped up the study of the seven churches of Asia, the Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and for the next two months, this month and next month, the ministers are going to rotate turns speaking about the furniture that you'll find in the tabernacle. Do we have the PowerPoint available? Thank you. We're calling this series Rooms to Know, and I think there's an obvious reason for that. We want you to know 
the rooms that are present in the tabernacle, both the exterior space and the two interior spaces. And we're going to spend our time talking about the different pieces of furniture that you'll find throughout this entire complex. Here's what you need to know. Furniture in the Bible tells a story just as well, particularly when you look at the furniture that's present in the tabernacle. We tend to forget about the tabernacle. We tend to forget about its furnishings because they don't have a physical representation in our interactions with God anymore. But like everything else in Mosaic Law, they serve as a type for an anti-type in the New Testament. Now, we don't use that terminology very much anymore. We don't talk about type and anti-type. And while most of you probably know that what that means, for those who have never heard that terminology, an anti-type is a fulfillment or completion of an earlier truth revealed in the Bible. An anti-type in the New Testament is foreshadowed by a type by its counterpart in the Old Testament. And so we look at this furniture. It's a type. It's, it's the, the foreshadower of something that we'll, some truth we'll discover in the New Testament. That's not the greatest explanation, but that's my quick moving on explanation of type and anti-type. And every piece of furniture in the tabernacle serves as a metaphor for something you find in the New Testament. And so we're going to spend our time on these Sunday nights examining these pieces of furniture and seeing what they represent and seeing why they matter. Because you know what? When you get to the New Testament, we individually and we collectively are identified as God's temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you'll see that the church collectively... Paul will use the, 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 the terminology, he will say, you are God's temple. He's not referring to you individually, he's referring to you as the church. You are God's temple. Collectively, the people in the church are God's temple. And then you can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, which is more familiar to you, where we're told, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The people are the temple today. So what does the furniture have to do with the people. That's what we want to seek to investigate. And this evening we're going to start with a piece of the, the, the furniture, uh, the, of the tabernacle, that's probably the least known piece of furniture. On the screen I have the tabernacle displayed for you in one uh, image that I pulled off the internet. And you can see in the outer court you have essentially two pieces of furniture that are labeled. You have the altar of burnt offering and then you have a, a basin of water that's known as the bronze laver or the bronze basin, depending on which translation you read. You can see here in this diagram all the pieces of furniture that appear in the temple. And again, that bronze laver or that bronze basin sits outside the temple. That's going to be our first piece of furniture we talk about tonight. And the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about this piece. It only gets mentioned a few times in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 30, if you want to go ahead and turn there, Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 through 21, God orders its construction. We'll look at this passage in just a moment. But then if you go over to Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8, you can read about how a guy named Bezalel builds it. And if you jump to Exodus chapter 40, verse 30 and 32, you can read about Moses placing it in the tabernacle. If you skip even further ahead to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 23 through 26, or 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, you can read about how Solomon replaced it. Beyond that, not much is said about this piece of furniture. 
Unlike other pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, this piece is not described except for its composition, that it was made of bronze, and its general shape being that it was a bowl, a basin, and the fact that it, it must be placed upon a stand, a stand that was also made of bronze. We don't have its dimensions. We know very little about this object. But there are three important things that we do know about it. First, we know that the purpose of the bronze basin was to cleanse. Look at Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. That's its purpose. Now, when we say a, a bronze basin, uh, this probably was a bit bigger, bigger than you might imagine. Uh, some of us may be thinking, oh, it's like a... Uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can picture it, but I can't say it. The thing that birds go bathe in. What? Bird bath, yeah. <laughs> I thought there was like a much more significant name there. It was probably larger than that because you have all the priests going to use this to wash with. It was intended for the purpose of washing hands and washing the feet of the priest. It had this cleansing function. If you keep reading in Leviticus chapter 30, and you look at, verse, uh, at the end of verse 18, uh, where Moses is told to put water in it, verse 19 says, "...with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water." So when they go about their priestly functions, whether they're going to go over with, with the animal sacrifices and offer them on the altar of burnt offering, they're supposed to wash first. When they're going to transition and go into the tabernacle, into what is known as the holy place, they're going to have to wash first. It's about cleansing consistently. That was the bronze basin's purpose. It's the most important thing you really need to know about the basin. In fact, the emphasis of the passage here in Exodus chapter 30 is not so much on the design of the basin, but on its purpose, because that's what you need to know. And its purpose is to provide a water supply for washing hands and feet in connection with those holy purposes that take place at the tabernacle. You have to remember in Mosaic law, purification was a big deal. And no one had to be more concerned about purification than the priests. And so this, basin, this uh, basin was outside for the purpose of ensuring that whatever they're doing, they're going to be purified for that activity. That's the first thing you need to know about the bronze basin. The second thing you need to know is about its positioning. The bronze basin was positioned between the sacrifices and the holy place. To say that another way, it set between the altar of burnt offering on which sacrifices were made and the entrance to the tent of meeting. You could see that on the diagrams that I showed earlier. It's situated just outside the door of the tabernacle. It's there. In verse, if you look at Exodus chapter 30, verse uh, 18, where Moses is instructed to make a basin of bronze with a stand of bronze and then given directions where to place it. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. This basin, this, this, uh, this 
instrument that's used for cleansing and purification is on a route between where sacrifices are made for the, for the people, for the praise of God. It's situated between that altar and the physical structure that's associated with the very presence of God. It's an interesting place for this to be. It's placed where you can't go inside into the presence of God represented by that Ark of the Covenant without being cleansed first. And without having sacrificed even before you cleanse. Keep that in mind as we progress through this study of the bronze basin because the third thing you need to know about the bronze basin is that its use was critical. One thing that stands out to me when you read Exodus chapter 30 verses 17 through 21, this description of God's ordering of this uh, piece of furniture, is that if you look at the end of verse 20, after telling Moses that the priests must wash their hands and feet with water before they enter, before they minister at the altar or before they enter the tent of meeting. He says, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. And to make sure Moses and the children of Israel really understood this, grasped this, you can look at verse 22, because the life and death depiction of this piece of furniture is reiterated. God wants them to know that if you don't do this, if you don't use this basin, if you don't wash your hands and feet before you do your priestly duties, you're going to die. See, when we, associate, when we think about death in association with the tabernacle or the temple, we always think about the Ark of the Covenant because Uzzah reached out to stable, to steady the Ark, and as a result of touching it, he died. But a priest is warned that if you don't wash before you enter the tent of meeting, if you don't wash before you go and make those sacrifices, you're going to die. That means that this piece of furniture and its purpose were critical to the life of the priest and the function of the tabernacle. Those are the three big things you need to know about the bronze basin. But the real question we need to address tonight and, the, and what we need to wrap our minds around is what does the bronze basin have to do with us? What does the bronze basin serve as a type for in the New Testament? The bronze basin's purpose is to cleanse. The bronze basin is situated between where sacrifices were made and where the presence of God was. And the bronze basin, critical because without it, you die. So in my opinion, the bronze basin is comparable to baptism. Let me explain what I mean. Consider first the purpose of baptism. The purpose of baptism is to cleanse. All throughout the New Testament, language is used in association with baptism that has to do with sin removal. Most of you are aware of that. You can think of Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 where Paul is given instructions on what he needs to do 
uh, after his uh, uh, experience on the road to Damascus. And Ananias tells him, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, baptism is associated with washing, with, with sin removal. But that's not the only place. That's the easiest. Think about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Well, a passage that's really familiar to us when it comes to baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the forgiveness of your sins, we understand that to be sin removal. We understand that to be washing and cleansing. But the language of washing and cleansing isn't specifically identified in that passage that we so often reference. But think about the language of for the forgiveness of sins. Where else is that phrase used in the New Testament? Well, one place that it's used is at the Last Supper. As Jesus instituted the Last Supper, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. When you consider what Jesus said when he passed that cup, his reference to the forgiveness of sins, that his blood is for the forgiveness of sins. And then you go over to Acts chapter 2 in that first gospel sermon, and Peter, Peter indicates that the way, the means to forgiveness of sins is through baptism. That language of forgiveness of sins associates baptism with the blood of Jesus. Because it's in the waters of baptism that you come in contact with the blood of Jesus that washes away your sins. Think about how John described Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. He described him as him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, cleansing is associated with forgiveness there. John said if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Baptism is the means through which we come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ that provides that cleansing. And when we look at the bronze laver and it's this, this piece of furniture that existed there to provide a, a means of cleansing before the priest entered the tent of meeting, we can see in it a connection to baptism because baptism is the means through which we can be cleansed. But that's not the only connection I see between the bronze basin and baptism. Do you remember that placement of the basin between the altar and entrance to the tabernacle? Now, this language I just put on the screen sounds weird. So bear with me as I explain it. The positioning of baptism is between Jesus' sacrifice and God's throne room. I want you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 10 with me for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to read with me verse 19 through 22 of that text. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the author of Hebrews is using the tabernacle metaphor right here. Entering the holy place, that's the front room of the tabernacle, the room just on the other side of the door from the bronze basin. 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews is saying that because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of the shedding of his blood, we can confidently enter the tabernacle. The priest could only confidently enter the tabernacle if he had cleansed himself, if he had washed his hands and his feet according to Mosaic law. And did you notice there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22? There's reference to the blood of Jesus. Reference to that that sacrifice that's made. And remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the altar of burnt offering, and we'll talk about it again next week when Ben presents a lesson on that piece of furniture. But the altar of burnt offering is where the animal sacrifices were made for, for the people's sins. They were only temporary sacrifices. They were only good for a short period of time. But it is on that altar that sins were paid for. Jesus, the perfect lamb, comes along, and on Calvary, he makes the sacrifice that is permanent. He pays for sins once and for all. His blood is sacrificed to cleanse us. And we can have confidence because of that to enter the throne room, the house of God, because, as verse 22 says, we've been washed with pure water. You see, just as the priest would have to go make that sacrifice on the altar, come over and wash his hands in the bronze basin, and then he could enter the tabernacle. It's because of what Jesus did in our past that we can come in contact with it, in contact with it in our present, and therefore enter the house of God in our future. It's because of what Christ did and our access to what he did through baptism that we have that confidence to enter the house of God. So when I look at Hebrews chapter 10 and this description of of entering the holy place by the blood of Jesus and this description of us being washed with pure water, I see in it this connection to the bronze basin and how it's placed between where the sacrifices take place and where the presence of God was represented. But there's something else we need to mention. You may recall I pointed out that the bronze basin was critical, that the use of the bronze basin was critical, because there was statements that if they didn't use it, if they didn't wash their hands and feet before they entered the tent of meeting, they would die. We can say the same thing about baptism. It's critical. Think about Peter's comparison of baptism to the water that saved Noah because Noah followed God's directions. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, where Peter, Peter will say, Baptism now saves you. Without it, Peter implies, 
you cannot be saved. And Paul compared baptism to circumcision under the Mosaic law in Colossians chapter 2. And he indicated that being buried with Christ in baptism results in being forgiven of all your sins. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And the implication that he's making is that without that burial, forgiveness is not possible. And then you can go to Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 where Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. His implication is that if you don't believe and if you don't submit to baptism, you cannot be saved. But the passage I really want you to think about this evening is Matthew chapter 22 in the first 13 verses. It's a parable that Jesus tells. It's a parable known as the parable of the wedding feast. And I'll start reading in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. That'd be a good end to the parable right there. It makes a fantastic point. It makes the point that if you don't accept the invitation, you don't get to go to the feast. But Jesus didn't conclude the parable right there. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus could have ended the parable, could have ended the parable by making the point that there are going to be many people who receive the invitation, but don't take the invitation. And that would have been a consistent point with other teachings in Scripture. But Jesus chose to tack on a couple more verses and talk, talk about garments. And what he communicates through those last couple of verses is that you can accept the invitation, but if you don't do it according to the will of the king, it's going to be like you never showed up to the wedding in the first place. Throughout Scripture, new clothes are associated with salvation. You can turn over to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes 
so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. New clothes are indicative of salvation. The washing is indicative of baptism. And when you look at that passage that I just read from Revelation chapter 21, the implication is that the means to salvation is through baptism. Now let's be honest. The vast majority of you who are sitting in here tonight already knew all that. Many that are sitting in here tonight have already made the decision to put Christ on in baptism. Many that are sitting in here tonight don't need a new lesson on the importance of baptism or on the necessity of baptism or need to hear what they need to do to receive salvation. This is the Sunday night crowd after all, right? But just because you may not need to hear that doesn't mean someone else in this room doesn't need to hear that. And as we begin this series where we investigate the furniture that you'll find in the tabernacle, and we consider its implication on the New Testament and on the teachings of the New Testament, we can't overlook the fact that this basin of water that set outside the tent of meeting, this basin of water that was for cleansing, that if unused could lead to death, correlates to the very avenue and means through which our salvation is received. Salvation is a gift from God. We are saved by His grace through faith. But Scripture affirms that the way in which we come in contact with His saving grace expressed through the blood of Jesus is through the waters of baptism. Just as the way those priests could enter the tabernacle was through the washing of their hands and feet in that basin of water. And as we're gathered here tonight, we offer the invitation that if you have not put Christ on in baptism, if you have not made the decision to have sins washed away by his blood, then we invite you to make that decision tonight while together we stand and sing. Our